Why, hello there. Welcome back to the USC Christian Challenge podcast. We're just getting back from our spring break retreat, and wow, was it a special one. You can listen to recordings of the sessions right here on the podcast if you want to review anything and if you want to check out some of the workshops that you might have missed. But as great as our experiences with God are on the mountaintops, when we're back in real life, doubts can really creep in, and pretty quickly at that. But it's okay. Aaron today offers advice and support for doubting hearts to answer doubts and drive us to greater faith. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so if... I see some open seats over here, so maybe this side can stand up and everybody shift down because there's a bunch of people over here who do not have seats yet. So this side, you can do it. Use those quads. There's some seats over here. There's a lot right here. Don't be shy. Yeah, let's move. Yeah, in case people come in late. This will make things less awkward for them later. Do we know who's saving three seats here? They're gone, Zoe, just move it. Perfect, perfect. Okay. Yeah, if you guys want to sit there, that will make it easier if people come in late. Okay, welcome. Sorry about that, guys. My name is Erin. For those of you I have not met yet, I'm glad to be with you tonight. I'm going to be sharing on the topic of when in doubt, specifically what to do when doubts arise. Kind of feels a little odd sharing about doubt, especially to some of you who are with us on our spring break trip. Some of you may still be riding high off that mountaintop experience from what you learned. And others of you may have quickly tumbled back into reality. And so the topic of doubt is very relevant for you tonight. So wherever you are, I hope that tonight is really helpful and encouraging to you. So in my own life, I have struggled with doubt. It's not something I keep a secret. It's just part of of my life. I feel like I'm not a psychologist. I haven't read a ton of books, but some people's, this is my assumption, that some people's personalities and temperaments really lend themselves to struggling with doubt more than other people do. So if you've never struggled with doubt and you're here tonight, I hope that you'll learn some truths that will serve you in case one day you ever do. And you don't need to be concerned if you've never struggled with doubt. It's a-okay nor do you need to be concerned if you have struggled with doubt. Doubt is a very real part of living in the broken world that we live in. So some of you may be here tonight and not have a personal relationship with God yet. You may doubt that he exists or there may be other things about him that you doubt that have kept you from beginning or even investigating a relationship with him. So I hope that your time here tonight leaves you with a clear perspective on who Jesus is and his response to a very dear friend of his who struggled with doubt. So a working definition of doubt that we're going to work off of tonight is this. To lack confidence, to consider unlikely. To lack confidence, to consider unlikely. So I would say that with that definition, most of us could say that we've struggled with doubt a time or two, right? It's a pretty broad definition. So a fun fact about me is I, I know you're like, I didn't come to hear fun facts about you, but it, it leads into the message, is that I was actually homeschooled in kindergarten and first grade. And um, it was a short-lived time in the Gillum family. <laughs> but it was, I lived in a really tiny town in rural Oklahoma, so it was quite an anomaly to homeschool your children. So one of my really good friends asked her mom if she could take me as her show-and-tell to kindergarten. <laughs> so like... I had no idea, right? Because I hadn't been. So I show up at school, and, she, and it was her name was Talia, and she was like, "This is my friend Aaron." 
her mom is her teacher, you know, like that kind of stuff. I still remember, I think it's it's quite unnerving to be on display in front of people. So even as a five-year-old, it deeply impacted me to be Talia Dalzell's show and tell that day. I would never do it again. I think it was a one and done deal. But um, tonight we're going to do something a little different. I would like to do a little show and tell with you from a man in the New Testament. His name was John the Baptist. So I Google image searched John the Baptist so I could like have an image. Don't do it. There's like really weird paintings of him. And if you know how he died, there's some really graphic paintings of him. So uh, we will talk about his death later. But so you're just going to have to Use your imagination during this biographical sketch of John the Baptist, and then we're going to get into um, a snapshot of his life. But I want to tell you a little bit about him so that you can better understand what's going on. So John the Baptist, well, that's not his name. Like, it wasn't like John Baptist was his last name. There's just a, a couple Johns, and so you can differentiate, like, who this, this is John the Baptist. So he was born to elderly parents. Their names were Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they had been unable to have children. So the angel Gabriel actually announced to Zechariah, who was a Levitical priest, which was kind of a big deal, that he was going to have a son, a son that he never thought he would have. So he received this news. I mean, obviously, it's an angel. It's kind of a big deal with some shock and some doubt mixed in. So this angel said this about John, found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He said, He will be great, talking about John, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zechariah doubted this word from God. He logically assumed that it was not possible for he and his wife at such an old age to have children. And so in response, the angel said, okay, you are going to be mute until God's promise is fulfilled. So Zechariah was unable to speak until his son was born. So it's interesting in the life of John that John and Jesus were actually related So their mothers were relatives. So the same angel, Gabriel, appeared to Mary and said, you are going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. You are going to give birth to Jesus. And so when Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, went and visited Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John, John actually like leapt in the womb of Elizabeth upon hearing Mary's voice, which is pretty cool. So God fulfilled his promise. John was born. And then during the circumcision ceremony, because this was a good Jewish family, right? Levitical priest. Zechariah said this about his son, found in Luke 1, 76. You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. So we can kind of fast forward to John's adult life. He lived this like really rugged life. I think, you know, people can describe me in a lot of ways. I don't think I will ever be described as rugged. There's nothing rugged about me. But John really was rugged. He lived in this mountainous area in Judea between Jerusalem and the Red Sea. He lived in the desert. He ate locusts and honey. And I, I got a Google searched locusts because I thought, I don't know if these Californians know locusts. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but it's never occurred to me to eat that. But John did. That was his sustenance, that and honey. Um, and he also wore clothes made of camel skin. Have any of you ever ridden a camel? Yes. When you rode the camel, did you think, I would really like to be clothed in the skin of this camel? Like, no, it's like matted hair. I got to ride a camel in North Africa. It never occurred to me, like, oh, I would like to start a new fashion line with 
camel. No, but John, this was kind of like the typical garb of the prophets of that day. He was this rugged man, and he lived clearly a very simple life. If you're eating bugs and honey from bees, yeah, it's a simple, simple life. But his ministry really began to grow in popularity. In fact, it is said in Matthew 3, verses 5 through 6, that people went out to him from Jerusalem all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So to be baptized by John was to admit your sin, to repent of your sin and to admit it. And so this repentance really didn't appeal to a lot of the religious leaders because they were pretty full of themselves. They were self-righteous thinking they were not in need of any sort of forgiveness and repentance. So John had some really strong words for them. Strong words, I I think we would never even use these words today. He referred to them as a brood of vipers. Like that's not really even something, that's disrespectful today, right? But he was really bold in his proclamation of what your way of thinking is wrong and it is going to get you in trouble because their trust was really in their Jewish lineage for salvation. And John's saying, you're missing the boat. You've got to repent and turn to Christ. So the general population of John. So there was people who hated him because he called them brood of vipers. And there were also people who thought he was a prophet. And some people even thought he was the Messiah, the long-awaited one that for years and years there had been prophecies about. And John was very quick to say in John chapter 3, written by a different John, verse 28, he says about himself, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. So John really cautioned his disciples um, about what they had seen and heard from the beginning. Like, I'm not Christ. I've come to prepare the way for him. He was just merely the messenger. And so he wanted people not to get confused on who he was and who Jesus was coming. So, or who Jesus, the one that was coming. So in Matthew 3, 2, John's message was very simple and very clear. It was repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Over and over again, that's what you see. That's what John was about, is preparing people's hearts that Jesus was coming. Because he knew that once Jesus came on the scene, essentially his job was done. And so he was preparing people for that. So the spotlight was getting ready to transition off of him and onto Jesus. He said this in John 3, verse 30, talking about Jesus. He must become greater. I must become less. It's interesting that John is also the one who baptized Jesus. So Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And so John rightly is like, no, no, you don't need to be baptized. You have nothing to repent of. You are sinless. You are perfect. And Jesus said, no, no, I want you to baptize me because this means it's to fulfill all righteousness, meaning that Jesus was identifying himself with us sinful people in order to secure righteousness for us, that we would be made righteous because of Jesus. So in humility, John baptizes Jesus. And it said, as Jesus comes out of the water, we read in Matthew 3, 16 through 17, that heaven opened up and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So that day kind of marked the beginning of the end of John's ministry. From that point forward, he pointed people to Jesus and away from himself. I'm going to fast forward a bit, and John is in jail. 
King Herod had put John in jail because King Herod had married his brother's ex-wife, and John spoke out about that, saying that is unlawful, that is not right. And obviously Herod's wife, Rhodes, did not like John saying those things about her. So John ends up in jail, which is not surprising because when you say things like that about a king, your time is probably limited. So I don't know what the prison was like. I imagine it was very filthy, very gross. I imagine it was lonely, that he was maybe likely in pain, some sort of maybe physical pain. Could not have been a pleasant experience. And we don't know what he was feeling with, what he was dealing with at this point. There may have been doubts that crept in. We, we can speculate, I am gonna speculate tonight, but all of this is made up, so uh, don't say, Aaron said this, this is not in the Bible at all. We don't know what he was thinking, but you know when you're sitting there and you're alone and it's dark, and you're uncomfortable and you're in pain, the questions come, right? And the what ifs and those kinds of things, you know, thinking maybe he thought, what if he was a false prophet? What if he was leading people away from God instead of to God and maybe God was punishing him? Or what if Jesus wasn't really this long awaited Messiah? There had been false messiahs, people claiming to be Jesus and that wasn't the case. So rethinking the signs, the what ifs running over and over your head, what if, what if, what if? I don't know if you've ever thought, run the what-if scenarios, but that's a struggle of mine. But even in his doubts, John knew with this deep, unshakable faith that Jesus would tell him the truth about who he was and that he needed to hear from Jesus again. So that's where we're entering the story is John is imprisoned by Herod and he is sending two of his really close followers to question Jesus. So we're going to look at a passage tonight found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. It says this, Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So while John is in prison, you know, word is getting back to him about what Jesus was doing. And it seems like there may have been this moment of doubt. And John sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you really the Messiah? Confirm it for me. I want to know. And remember, the Jews had these expectations of the Messiah, that he would come. You know, Rome was ruling them at that time, and they wanted to be done with Rome. So their expectation is this coming Messiah, this king, would overthrow Rome. He would be the strong, capable leader that they longed for. The freedom was found in him. But when you look at Jesus' response to John, what you see is it wasn't frustration, and it wasn't disappointment in John's question, It wasn't rebuke. It was actually compassion, right? It was affection. He loved John. You could see that from his response. You know, Jesus had spent 40 days and nights in the desert. He'd been without food and water, and the enemy had come to him and tempted him. So Jesus was very aware of 
the enemy's schemes when we're alone and we're isolated, when we don't understand what's going on and how easily lies can quickly take root in our mind and doubts and questions. So Jesus responded to these two followers of John saying, look, look at these prophecies that have been fulfilled. Jesus didn't rebuke John. He didn't condemn John, but he gave evidence, evidence that he was who he said he was. And he was doing these things that had been promised about him years and years and years and years before. And I don't know, you know, how God works in your life, but oftentimes in my life, he works on a slower timetable than what I would, what I would like. I would like him to be a little more quick to answer and to respond, maybe like right now, like a microwave approach. But we can know that God always will help us, that he always shows up in our time of need and his grace is sufficient for us. You know, in John's darkness and in John's pain, Jesus sent a promise back to John and he will do the same for you and I. His promises are real. So after alluding to these Old Testament prophecies about you know, the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, lepers being cleansed, Jesus ends that part in verse 23 saying, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. So Jesus is referring here to someone who trusts in him. You know, amidst difficult situations and unmet expectations, when it's not easy, when it's contrary to all that we know about life, Jesus says, trust me, put your trust in me and you will be blessed, blessed in ways you could never imagine. So what can we learn from John's example? What do we see here? We see that doubt is not uncommon, that even people with faith doubt. We can see that a lot of things can cause doubt in our lives. Trials, pain, unmet expectations, limited perspective, right? All sorts of things. John could not understand everything that was happening or everything that was not happening, right? Like he was sitting in prison and Jesus was out there. He was supposed to be, I'm sure in his mind, thinking I was going to share in that. I wanted to see him in action and he wasn't. So the reality is, is that many of our questions and doubts often spring from these same things, from unmet expectations. Even when we've been walking with God and trying to be obedient and then tragedy hits and we think, what, what's going on, God? So we have to recognize that, that our perspective is limited, that we just see a sliver of what's going on, just essentially what is right in front of our face. Like John had no idea the story that was unfolding before him and the Messiah, what was about to happen, that it wasn't at all about a political regime overthrow and control being taken at all, that there was a new kingdom being ushered in. And it didn't fit at all with what John expected that redemption was coming. His perspective was just so small. The same for you and the same for me when life hits us hard. And I love the fact that John didn't hide his doubt. I think that's something we can really learn from him is that he owned it. He opened up to trusted friends. He got it out in the open. I think we learn not to sit in the doubt, to allow the doubt to move us to action, to be honest, to be open. In doing some research, I was listening to a podcast and I thought this was a really funny quote. Doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. It gets you moving. I don't know if you've ever had ants in your pants, but it'll get you moving. So allow the doubt to really get you moving, not to just sit in the doubt, to doubt well, and to allow the doubt and the questions to give you deeper understanding. It can really grow and deepen your faith. So maybe the idea of like doubting your doubts, right? 
Go to mentors, go to friends, go to people who can speak the truth to you and point you back to Jesus, just like John's friends did to him. So I'd encourage you in three things. The first is to identify the questions you have. Sometimes it's just like, I just have all these doubts. Well, then if you, you start narrowing it down and maybe writing it out, you realize these are some specific things that I wonder about that I'm questioning. And so if you can write it out and narrow it down and kind of focus on it. So identify the questions you have and then think, where can you go for the answers? And in this situation, like Google is not your friend. Like Google is crazy and it will tell you all sorts of different things. Do not go to Google. There's some great, go to your trusted friends, go to the word of God. Don't Google. And then go to those places, to those friends, to Scripture, and search for answers there. Because that's the thing. You stay in Scripture. We see that from the example of Jesus, right? That he pointed John back to Scripture, to the truth that he knew. And I love that he tells that to John's closest friends. That go and tell John what you see and hear. And Jesus was using these phrases from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, things that John would have been very familiar with. I mean, he was a a kid who grew up in the synagogue. I'm sure he went to Hebrew school and he knew a lot about Old Testament theology and scripture. And so just the idea that Jesus would use those sorts of things to minister to John in his hours of need shows us that we need that very thing in our life. We need truth in the midst of doubt. So the first place to turn when you're battling doubt is scripture. Stay in the word of God. It will be true and God will always keep his word. I love this illustration that I found as I was doing um, some research that I wanted to share with you guys, that doubt can be as normal as a house guest. So doubt can be a normal part of our Christian life, but not in the way that you may think. Normal in the sense of like having someone stay in your home. So viewing doubt more as like a sporadic visitor in the, your, the home of your heart, kind of that idea. So, you know, guests come in, they shake things up, they sleep on your couch, they use your bathroom, they leave dishes in the sink, those kinds of things, right? Um, but there's an expiration date to that. They're meant to like, okay, at some point they get up and they go back to their home, right? But if a guest just stays, like pitches a tent in the living room and decides they're just staying there, you know, there's a problem. Like you're not paying rent, this is my place, like this gets a little messy. So that's how doubt should be. Doubt should not overstay their welcome. But they're normal like a house guest, right? But if they stay too long, that's a problem. So we don't need to celebrate the doubts, that's not something to do, but we don't need to allow them to loiter in our hearts either. We don't need to be afraid of them, they're normal. I mean, follow John's example. He was bold enough to send out friends to get the answer to his questions, and we need to do the same thing. So what has this looked like in my life? Um, you know, I was the same age as a lot of you, a little bit older than the freshman. I was a senior, um, and it was fall semester of my senior year, and I was failing a class I needed to graduate. And I've shared this story with many of you, and it was a journalism law class, and there was a midterm and a final. There was two questions on the midterm. I failed one, so I got a 55. He gave me five points for my name. So I needed 100. I needed 100 on the final to pass the class. And a bunch of us took it in the fall because we knew if we didn't pass it in the fall, we could take it in the spring because we needed it to graduate. So it was, it was pressure packed. So I'm holed up on a Sunday night in the library. I went to the University of Oklahoma and I was with like, the smartest people in my class. I was like, we will pass this. Like, because you know, there was also shame in that too. What if I was the one who didn't pass and they passed? It was, but we knew there's only gonna be two questions. So I look up and my friend Amanda, who I'd grown up with my whole life, and we were college roommates my freshman and sophomore year, and then I moved to a different dorm. Um, 
And she was there. And then there's these two staff ladies from Christian Challenge. I was like, this is weird. So I get up and I go out and they told me that my dad died that night. And this was, this sounds like a long time ago, but I didn't have a cell phone. It, it was it, like, you guys can't even imagine a world without cell phones, but I went through all of college without a cell phone. We like, we found each other. We, we, it was amazing how life worked without a cell phone. So they could they couldn't, my mom could not get in touch with me. So she'd like, through this long story, dispatch these people to find me. So then I go back to my dorm and there's more Christian Challenge staff there. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So then I go up to my room and I'm like, what do you wear to, a f- I, I have no idea what to wear to my dad's funeral. I was like, every, I just felt like people were looking at me. I lived in a single room. So it was a, like a shoebox. There's all these people. And I, I was like, I don't know what to do. So people like help pack my bags. Meanwhile, on the other side of campus, my brother was a sophomore. Um, some other friends that we'd grown up with found my brother and told him. So my mom's one request was that we did not drive home that night. So a couple other Christian Challenge staff members who had had a new baby, they volunteered. We lived about two and a half hours from where we went to school. It was the longest, quietest car ride of my life. And so we get there, and another friend babysat their baby so they could serve and minister to my brother in this way. And I'll be forever grateful. So we get home, and it's like, what? Like, I don't even know what to do. It's just, he was just there. Like he always kept his like pharmacy ring and wallet in the kitchen. It was all there, you know, the dirty clothes were in the hamper. It was there, but he wasn't there. And I didn't know what to do. So then, I mean, at this point, no one in my family had ever passed away. All my grandparents were alive. I was 21. My dad was only 47. He was very young. So we had relatives flying from Toronto, from San Francisco, driving from Oklahoma. And the house is just, we didn't have a big house, but it was just like full of people. And I remember... One of my mom's friends just sat and answered the phone because people, it was before, I know, before Facebook. So we couldn't like say, this is when the funeral is going to be. Like people were calling and giving condolences. And so my mom's friend literally sat in our kitchen answering the phone for three days. And we'd be like, Aaron, this is for you. Or Trevor, this is the, passing the phone around. You know, it was a really hard time. I'd never had a conversation with my dad about what songs do you want sung at your funeral? Like I had no idea. I had to pick out the casket, I was like, the cheapest one. He would want a cheap one. You know, it's like, my dad was a frugal man. Let, let's not, don't show me the fancy. Like, okay, can we go down? How about a just wooden box? Like, you know, like, I don't know. Like, and then there's like, the, you go to the cemetery. I don't know if he wants to be under a tree. Like, I was like, I never had these conversations. It just felt like the weight of the world was on me. I, I have no idea, these huge decisions. And I was like, immobilized, right? And then everybody leaves, right? And you're trying to figure out this new normal. So my brother and I had both taken incompletes in our classes, knowing that we would have to go back in the fall or in the spring to take them. But the thing is, my dad had made some really wise decisions financially. He, before Dave Ramsey, there was this guy named Larry Bruquette. And so my dad did the envelope system. He had an emergency fund but not an emergency fund to pay for two kids in college. You know, food is an emergency, shelter is an emergency, college is not an emergency. You know, it was my senior year, I had one semester, my brother was a, a division one athlete, so it was indoor track season, outdoor, he was gonna miss it all. And so these people from my church and in my hometown found out that we needed money and they gave money so my brother and I could go back to school. And just a side note on that, like, my siblings and I benefited tremendously from the choices that my parents made, not to just attend church, but to be involved in church. Like my dad taught fourth grade Sunday school the day he died. And for like 15 years before that, like 
people showed up in our lives and we benefited so much from that. So as you guys are thinking about churches, I would so recommend finding a place where the word of God is preached, but also where people are involved in each other's lives. That when your life falls apart, people show up. You will need it. Life is so hard. Another thing my dad did, and I really believe that God prompted him to do this, is six months before he died, he increased his life insurance policy. Well, you don't have to be a rocket science to know if you die within six months of changing your life insurance, increasing it or starting a new one, it issues all sorts of alerts. So my dad died at the beginning of December. On his birthday, investigators showed up at our house interviewing my mom and her neighbors for murder and suicide, despite the fact that an autopsy had showed my dad died of a really rare not so rare anymore now that you, I'm older, but it was a very hard to diagnose heart condition. So we didn't get any money for five months. So life just fell apart at every seam imaginable. But when I was home, I just kept going. But when I got back to school, right, that's when the doubts really elevated in my mind because it was quiet, right? I lived in that shoebox of a, of a dorm and I lived alone. There was no room for anyone else. And it's the quietness at night, right? Of like, who are you, God? Like, the, is this how you love your children? Like, I didn't get to say goodbye. Like, this isn't fair. I don't like this. You know, I'm not good with what just happened. And then it's like the idea of because of how he died, my siblings and all, I all had to go to these specialists in Oklahoma City who hadn't really seen this heart condition. And people our age were like, oh my gosh. Like we're sitting at the pediatric cardiologist in these like, like tiny little chairs. I was like, get life, get any worse. You know, like, like okay, we, we got to see this in a, like a, more of a grown-up. I mean, just like one thing after that. And the questions came and the doubts. And I didn't know what to do with them in that point. But thankfully, in that point in my life, I'd been a senior. I'd been involved in the Christian Challenger ministry, and I had some friends like John had, some friends who just showed up, friends who had not lost like I had lost, friends who really didn't know how to walk alongside a grieving friend, but they just kept showing up, and they just kept pointing me to Jesus, and they had some faith that I could borrow in the midst of my faith really wavering and wondering, where is God when everything falls apart. Because until that point in my life, God had met my needs through my dad, right? And now I was seeing, no, God is going to meet my needs through himself. Like my dad was there and then this. And also I had to stop and remember the faith of my dad. My dad fully believed in Jesus. My dad had a personal relationship with God. In fact, the day he died, he co-taught fourth grade Sunday school. And the co-teacher told us later that he told those fourth graders, heaven is going to be such a wonderful place. I can't wait to be there. And hours later, he was in the presence of Jesus. So here's some pictures of my siblings and I I wanted to show you. This is little Aaron and little Trevor. This is in Canada when we were little. I couldn't find any recent family pictures. I ran out of time. So that's us. My sister was probably napping. I do have a sister. She's in the next photo. Um, you can go to the next one. So this is the, the Gillum fam back in the 80s. Um, matching dresses and everything. Um, and then the last picture is one of um, the last pictures I took with my dad. We went to OU Texas, which is a huge rivalry that's at the Texas State Fair, and that was in October. And so it's a really special memory of my dad, um, my brother and I. And so if you ask any of my siblings, they would tell you, you know, that we've all struggled with doubt, that doubt has been a part of our story, with anger, with questions. 
But thankfully, by the grace of God, doubt isn't a house guest. Doubt is only a house guest. Doubt has not taken up residence in our, our homes of our heart. You know, doubt visits in the painful seasons, but thus far, with God's help, doubt hasn't defined us. Doubt hasn't derailed us. Similarly with John, doubt did not derail John. Doubt drove him to action. Can you imagine what it was like when John's friends returned to that prison and told him, it's true. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. I imagine these grown men dancing and shouting with such joy, celebrating in this dark, scary, lonely place. It's true. There is hope in the midst of a situation that seems utterly hopeless. There is hope. But John's story doesn't end there, right? From our perspective, the story has a tragic ending. You know, John didn't even live to see his mid-30s. Herodias manipulated a situation, and John was beheaded. And his ministry and his life cut short, but not by God's account, right? I don't know about you, but I found such renewed hope in the snapshot of John's life. And I pray that you know, his example will really spur us on to doubt well, to doubt our doubts. That may you and I, when we doubt, would that allow us to be driven to action when expectations are unmet, when confusion abounds, <clears throat> when the path ahead is unclear. Maybe the painful season seems like it's not going to ending and when the happy ending for sure is not going to happen. Maybe go to God and his word and to friends who will speak the truth to us in love. So my encouragement would you, to you would be don't doubt in the darkness what you've seen in the light. Let doubt motivate you to get the help, to get the answers. There are some great resources. There are staff in this room who love you and who want to help you. There are life group leaders who think the world of you and want to help. You know, a website that I love is this gotquestions.org. I use it all the time and highly recommend it. So in the doubting, may we draw close to the one who can handle our doubts, who's not frustrated like, oh my gosh, you're doubting again. No, that's not how we're met. Who meets us with love and compassion and reminds us through his word that he is who he said he is and he can do what he said he can do and nothing is impossible to him. So let me pray and then we're gonna welcome up Audrey and the worship team. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of John a man you loved and treasured so much. I thank you for his example that we can follow. And I pray that you would help us to doubt our doubts and to go to you with our doubts and not to pretend them away. Thank you that you're not angered or frustrated by our honesty and our confession. And I pray that you would really use doubts to clarify things in our life about who you are and who we are in you. And that you would really meet each of us in the midst of where we're just reconsidering things or questioning things or doubting. Thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the USC Christian Challenge podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platforms such as Spotify and Apple Music, even Amazon Music if you're so inclined that way. And you can also leave us a review so we can help get these resources into the hands of other people. We recorded this episode on a Thursday night gathering at the University of Southern California, and we'd love for you to join us if you're around the area. So get involved and find out more at USC Challenge on Instagram and on our website, uscchristianchallenge.com.